3: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the legendary Broadmoor Hotel. And when I say legendary, imagine a hotel... That's 1.5 square miles. That's uh, situated on 5,000 acres under the shadow of Cheyenne Mountain on the southern edge, of course, of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, This place is uh, amazing. It's going to celebrate next year its 100th birthday. It was actually opened in June of 1918. And the amazing part of this hotel is it's truly self-contained. When I first came here in 1973, they had their own zoo, their own fire department, their own lake, their own Olympic skating rink. In fact, Peggy Fleming used to train here for the Olympics. And much of that is still here today. Great food. I mean, I even learned how to fly fish here. If truth be told, I caught a tree. But it's a great location. And it's easily accessible, only about an hour and a half drive from Denver. Plus, they've got a great airport here. There's something else in this neighborhood that's so special! It's actually a national natural landmark. It's called the Garden of the Gods, and uh, the lead naturalist of that is with us now, Brett tennis But first, before we talk about what it, you got to tell me what it means. What is it?
1: Well, Garden of the Gods. I mean, it's three hundred feet. Yeah, we've got these brilliant red hogbacks, these spire rocks that stand up three hundred and twenty-five feet. They're they're thin. They're up by themselves. They've got Pikes Peak as the backdrop. And it's just gorgeous. And it's a city park. It's a city park and it's free to visit.
0: Now, how long have you been doing this?
1: I've been there about 10 years now. And what have you seen
0: in terms of the changes there? Or how or how do you protect it?
1: That is a big, big issue problem and, and fun challenge. Um, you know, there's, there's that common phrase that we hear, at least around the garden a lot, is that it's being loved to death. Um, it's sensitive soil and if people would just kind of follow the rules and... Stay on trail. That kind of helps, but you know it's it's. Well, let's talk brilliant. about the trail
0: because you've got six miles of uh, of paved roads, but
1: you've got twenty miles of hiking trails. That's right, a little over twenty miles, and some of them are paved. Most of them are single dirt track trails, and a lot of opportunities to enjoy them. Bike riding, bike riding, mountain bikes, you horses, horses, no motorcycles, no motorcycles, okay. not on the dirt trails, not on the dirt trails, and then the, there's also a birding trail, right? Yeah, well, the whole park is really part of what's known as the Colorado Birding Trail. And what kind of birds are we seeing there? Yeah, lots of variety, especially in the summer when the migratory birds are returning. Um, some of the more unique views are the prairie falcons that live right in the park, and you can see red-tailed hawks and swifts and a lot of different bird species. You know, we've, we've seen over the last couple of years, we've seen it in Aruba, we've seen it most
0: recently in Malta, where you have these natural rock formations that after all these years of weather and erosion end up collapsing. You had the arch in Naruba, you had the, the the natural arch in Malta, just recently you know, just collapsed. You have yeah. something there, you've got what, an 800, oh, excuse me, a 700 ton rock right. precariously balanced.
1: Yeah, we call it balanced rock, and it's, it's a sight to behold. It's just 700 tons, it's an estimated weight on this tiny little pedestal. And it's been like that for quite a while, and I think it'll be like that for a while yet. And is it like the Leaning Tower of Pizza
0: people have to go, they their photo taken with it? Yes. Yeah, oh, you got to go have your Stop photo it. holding it up. You know, more people die from selfies every year. Do you know I, this? It's I believe true. it. They're, weop- they're weapons of self-destruction. Who told everybody that the only reason there's a good picture has to include them in it? You know? It's like, how many people are going to be pushing up against the Leaning Tower of Pizza in that shot? Stop it. It's not an original idea. But people still
1: do it, right? They still do. They still will. Now, It's not only a city park, it's free. That's right. No cost to come. Just come on out and enjoy it. And not too many parks out there of this quality and caliber and scenic views. That What's the most,
0: other than the birds,
1: what's the most surprising wildlife I'm going to see out there? Well, you know, there's a lot of wildlife, even though we're in city limits. Great opportunities. Um, You know, some of the, the top animals people want to see, the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, bobcats, coyotes, mule deer are pretty popular. A mule deer. Yeah, here in Colorado, we have what, what is known as mule deer. <laughs> Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, they get their name because of their large ears, and uh, it, it kind of looks like a mule. And so that, that's kind of an old pioneer name that's stuck. They're uh, a little bit larger than whitetail deer, which is what most people are used to seeing. And this is right in the middle of a city park. It is. And are they fearless? They get a little bit used to the people. We've got quite a bit of visitation, and so they're used to people. I'm assuming the rules are don't feed them. Correct.
0: But people do anyway.
1: They do try to.
0: Yeah, and and the thing is, where I live back in the, east, in the East Coast, we are inundated with deer, and they're carriers of Lyme disease. And so we try to tell everybody, you know, they're friendly, they love you, they want to eat, do not pet them, because you might end up getting from the ticks Lyme
1: disease. Yeah, ticks, ticks are nowhere near an issue here like they are back east. We have a deer tick, um, and it can carry some diseases, but it is pretty rare. So great wildlife viewing, great hiking,
0: Great biking, great walking, and then, of course, it's the Garden of the Gods. It's the Garden of the Gods. A natural wonder inside a city park that's still free. Yes. Not a bad deal. Not at all. Brett Tennis, the lead naturalist of the Garden of the Gods, or as he likes to say it, around the garden, right? Is that the slang? That's right. Around the garden. <laughs>
4: Toto,
1: I am feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
0: the second oldest road race in America, only exceeded, I think, by the Indy 500. It's the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. And my next guest, I will qualify him as a fanatic because he's attended every one of them for the last 22 years. Is that right, Mitch Snow?
4: That's correct.
0: How crazy is the Pikes Peak Climb?
4: You know, it's incredible. It's one of the, the most unique and dangerous motorsport events in the world. And uh, for it to be,
0: you know how you just promoted it—the most unique and dangerous.
4: It, it is. It it's. I mean, we have 156 turns over 12.42 miles of mountain road, the highest spectating area in the world. It's it's truly unique. It's not only a, a great competition of both man and machine. It 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 really challenges you on a mental level and the physical level as well. You're you're being robbed of oxygen as you're making your way to the summit of fourteen thousand one hundred fifteen.
0: Your feet, car is I being speak. robbed of oxygen.
4: It is, and we actually we have electric cars that are really leading the, the charge in, in that effort because they don't lose horsepower. Nice cars. pun.
0: They're leading the charge. They are. Yeah. Electric charge, yeah. Hey, but you saw that video the other day of that race in Mexico? I did. I mean that was a crazy rally where the guy leaves the track, hops over fences and cars, hits one, ends up in a parking I mean, he was leading in the race at the time, right? Mm-hmm. He then runs around the
4: parking lot, figures
0: out a way back into the race, and he wins the race.
4: It's incredible. Do you have that stuff happen here? You know, we uh our, our cliffs are a little bit bigger. We a we, little more
0: unforgiving.
4: Yes, we there's actually uh, if, if you search YouTube for 2013 Fully wreck, there was a uh, <laughs> We we had a wreck where an, an Evo went off and rolled about 14 times, went down a few thousand. Oh my God! Feet. They they both lived. He, the driver and the co-driver, uh, just had a dislocated shoulder, but that's it. That that's it. If you see the video, you won't believe that. But it, uh, we we got very very lucky, and uh, they did as well.
0: Now this has been going on since when?
4: 1916 was our first race,
0: driven by what?
4: Uh well, Spencer Penrose who. Who? Well, that's the Broadmoor. Exactly. He founded the Broadmoor in 1918. He came to Colorado Springs, saw it as a, a beautiful area, knew that it could be a premier tourism destination. There was a carriage road to the summit of Pikes Peak. He he went to the National Forest Service, who owned the, the area, and he got a special use permit from them to build a carriage road up, up the highway. So he started that in, in 1915 in July of nineteen sixteen he completed the highway and then one month later in August of nineteen sixteen he decided to host the first hill climb to promote tourism to the highway and really get get the word out there about the event. Um, and now Pikes Peak's the second most visited mountain in the world.
0: And even then was it up to twelve thousand feet?
4: We went all the way to fourteen thousand one hundred and fifteen feet.
0: Wow, but the spectators are twelve thousand
4: that that is our highest spectator yeah, correct.
0: Exactly. And let's be clear about something it's not a racetrack.
4: It's not. It's a, it's a public toll road, 364 days a year. You and I can go drive it. At, Except for one day. At 20 miles an hour. But
0: and what's that one day?
4: That is uh, June 25th this year. We always do it on the last Sunday in June. Uh, it, we have about 100 competitors coming in. Romain DeMa, who won the 24 Hours of Le Mans last year, and Pikes Peak is returning, uh, looking to, to challenge for the record. and it, it should be a heck of a race.
0: Who holds the record for the fastest?
4: Sebastian Loeb does in Peugeot. They came out in 2013. And Wait a they, minute,
0: a Peugeot that actually works?
4: Yeah, it, it did more than work. It, <laughs> it uh, actually broke the overall course record by about a minute and a half.
0: And what, was, and what was the actual time?
4: Eight minutes and 13 seconds. Straight up. Straight up.
0: Oh, my God. Now, you mentioned electric cars. you got everybody competing in this, right? You, you have motorcycles. I mean, everybody's in on this.
4: Motorcycles, sidecars, ATVs, semi-trucks. We, we have it all semis go up this thing? We, we have semi-trucks.
0: They can't win the race.
4: They're, we used to have a, a semi-truck division. Oh, a, a uh, division, okay, fine. Back about, about two decades ago, but now they, they race against everyone else.
0: And the cool thing is, the event is nonprofit.
4: Yeah, we are actually an educational foundation. It, it's all about uh, kind of preserving our history and securing the future uh, so that we can educate people about this unique Colorado tradition.
3: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are
0: continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Joining me now is an escapee from Southern California (laughs) who got out in the nick of time 25 years ago after uh, after the riots and everything else that was crazy in 1992 and moved to Colorado Springs and then... Fell into the, the greatest job ever. I'll give you her official title, which is confusing. Director of Advancement and External Affairs. Let's dump that because she's about to become the actual director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. Aaron Hannon, how are
3: you? I'm doing
0: great. Now, you know, most people really don't have the right impression about places like Colorado Springs. They forget you got a symphony orchestra. They forget you got a fine arts center. They just think it's like ski bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah,
3: we've got this great reputation as being a beautiful outdoor adventure, kind which, of, you, which you deserve, which we do. And, and our landscapes are beautiful. And we have lots of recreation, but we also have a good deal of culture that we're very proud of.
0: So talk to me about what you what you're doing, because you've been there for a while.
3: I have. I have a um, long, wonderful history with the Fine Arts Center um, as a board member and as a member of the staff. And as you said, now uh, director of the Fine Arts Center here in the very near future. And, um, you know, we we are very proud of uh, the fact that we are a multidisciplinary arts center. So what that means is that it's not just paintings on the wall. Correct. Um, it is a museum, so we are uh, collecting, uh, interpreting, uh, exhibiting museum, world-class uh, visual arts center. We are also a performing arts center, so we have a, a full producing professional theater, uh, a lot of other um, performing arts um, events that uh, either we produce or that come through on our wonderful stage, and we have a school of art as well.
0: So you're talking everything from uh, performance art to... Uh Man of La Mancha.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yes, um, we're about to mount Bye Bye Birdie, and then right after that, we'll have Man of La Mancha.
0: So Sancho Panza lives.
3: That's right. Just double checking on, on our stage. Okay,
0: <laughs> but you know, but but you're called a fine arts center.
3: Yes. Not uh, a not a performing arts center. Correct, because the the vision was that we would house all of the arts under one roof, and that uh, that would include the visual arts as well as the performing arts and uh, the creation of art, so art instruction.
0: So you actually teach?
3: Yes. That's we, great. Yes, we have a uh, what is belovedly known here in Colorado Springs as the Bemis School of Art, which is part of our, our Fine Arts Center campus. And um, it, it, we have three sessions of art classes every year, f- everything from what you'd expect, painting, drawing, um, ceramics, etc., to felting and calligraphy and jewelry making and just a variety of dis- different kinds of disciplines. And open the to the public. And open to the public.
0: So you could come to the Broadmoor and, and be a felter. You could. That would be a little scary <laughs> for me, but, I, you, but you could. Yes. What's the most unusual discipline you're doing,
3: um, other than felting? Oh, I had to say felting. Yeah, of course. Yes. Um, that's a good question. I, you know, we've also done things like, um, music therapy, for example, as a, you know, workshops and that sort of thing. Or, uh, we will take people on excursions down to Santa Fe to explore the Southwest as part of their art, immersion art, uh, training. And they
0: all come back wearing turquoise.
3: <laughs> and silver.
0: Oh my God. Enough of that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, there's nothing you guys don't do then.
3: Oh no, I, we have bookmaking and encaustics and fiber arts. So it's it's a Bookmaking? Mhm.
0: You're gambling? <laughs> sorry.
3: Okay, you're getting me off on another. I know, whole I'm sorry. Other... No, I know, but you said bookmaking. <laughs> I just said.
0: To... People actually make their own journals then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they do the binding.
3: They, do, they do the binding, yes. And we, you know, we have poetry and so language arts is part of that instruction as well.
0: But in terms of permanent exhibits? Yes. What have you got?
3: So our collecting mission is around art of the Americas. So we, from our uh, humble beginnings in um, 1936, when the bin- building was built, we're actually almost 100 years old. We were founded as the Broadmoor Art Academy in 1919. Uh, and, still, and
0: still affiliated.
3: Still, oh yes, absolutely. We we were um, started as the Broadmoor Art Academy and simply changed our name. So we uh, we have always been connected to that history of the Broadmoor Art Academy. Uh, But the, um, the uh, permanent collection is uh, very rooted in Alice Bemis Taylor's original collection, which was um, art and iconography of the Southwest. So Native American art, uh, Hispanic art. And we also have always had a strong commitment to uh, modern art and contemporary art uh, so um, a variety of genres of art across the Americas So what
0: you're basically saying Aaron, it's one-stop shopping
3: One-stop shopping Yes
1: Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
0: For the regular listeners of the show, you know that whenever I come to a town for the first time or a city, uh, the very first place I go is not where you go, but you should go. I go to the firehouse, and the reason why I go to the firehouse is because the firefighters there, they've been in everybody's house. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They know everything. They They know where to go. They know where not to go. They know where to go to eat. They definitely know where to go to eat, but the point is they're the most accessible folks on the planet. They're happy to see you, and I learned so much from them. I also happen to be one. Uh, have been a volunteer since I'm 18 back in New York, but that's irrelevant. It doesn't. You don't have to be a volunteer firefighter to go visit the guys at the fire department. When I say the guys, I'm talking about men and women. 25% of our department is female. In fact, I, I report to a female chief, and she knows exactly where to go to eat. <laughs> Let me mm-hmm. tell you. Joining me now, because I'm always, I always want to get these guys on the show. Uh, the fire chief right here of Colorado Springs, a 32-year veteran. Uh, Ted Colas, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well, sir. Thank you for having me. And congratulations. You know, when, when I talk about you, you have done everything in that department. I mean, you have done everything. I've come up through the ranks. Yes, I have. Yes, you have. I mean, you've been an EMT. You've been a battalion chief. You've been a regular firefighter. You've been a deputy fire chief. You've done everything.
2: Well, yeah, I've been very fortunate in the organization, been able to be a paramedic, a job I truly loved, and then worked through the company officer ranks up through battalion chief and now fire chief. You know, you mentioned paramedic. Most people don't realize that, at least in our department, one-third of our calls are medicals. Yeah, it's probably higher than that here in Colorado Because Springs. of altitude. Well, we're, we're about 80% of our calls are medical in nature. 80? Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And you got and how many different uh, houses do you have? We got twenty two stations here spread out over about a two hundred square mile city. So and you're you gotta do rapid response in that situation. We do. And uh we we pride ourselves in uh trying to achieve uh getting to the scene within eight minutes ninety percent of the time. That is not bad. I'm assuming that any even when you get a
0: fire call, you're rolling some paramedics too. Oh yeah. We've you, got paramedics you, on all of our engine companies. Right. So. And EMTs. Yes. What's the biggest challenge for people who are visiting Colorado Springs that you need to tell
2: them about, other than altitude? Well, altitude's a big one, of course. You know, staying well hydrated. People just don't think about that, but making sure that they're well hydrated. The other thing is we're approaching the summer months, and the sun here is very intense because we're so so high high. Yeah. So lots of sunscreen. Protect yourself. Last thing we want is for people to visit our beautiful city and then get hurt and laid up and in the and, and staying out of the sun, laying in their hotel room and not enjoying all of the beauty around us. Exactly. Well, speaking of that, now we got to talk about you,
0: okay? And you're a big guy. You like to eat. Uh huh. Where do you go to eat
2: in Colorado Springs? That's not in the brochure. That's not in the guidebook. But it's a cool dive for breakfast. Uh, for breakfast, I love to go to a little coffee shop called Cava Coffee. Um, I love their breakfast burritos. They got great breakfast sandwiches. It's just a wonderful place to hang out. All right, so you got to go for the burritos there. Uh huh. Okay. How do you handle a hungry man? We got that. Uh-huh. Lunch. Uh, lunch. There's a a little uh ta- place in town called Panino's. It's all, a Panino is kind of like a pizza rolled up, and it's a locally owned restaurant. Italian food, really good stuff. And then, of course, I can't forget dinner. Dinner, you know, there's no better place than right here at the Broadmoor. And, you know, the, their, their food is just impeccable, and the chefs here just do a great job. So you're really sucking up because you're at the Broadmoor right now, aren't you? Well, you got to kind of, right? I mean, you got to <laughs> play to your environment a little bit. <laughs> By the way, the Broadmoor, I'm not so sure sure that they have their own fire department. They do. They have a, a fire department that's on-premises here. We work really well hand-in-hand with them. They do a lot of uh, catering to make sure that the guests here are very comfortable and well taken care of. All right. Now, what are you cooking at the house? Um, I grew up in Honolulu, so I like to cook oh my food God. that has like a Hawaiian flair to it. That's my favorite. You're, you're a Hawaii boy. Well, I grew up there, yeah. I, I, I can't claim Hawaiian by blood, but I can claim it with my heart. All right. So what are you cooking? Uh, I like a dish that's called you chicken, and it's kind of like a teriyaki chicken. You boil chicken thighs. Uh, glaze them you, you uh, reduce the sauce and glaze them when they're over the over the grill to finish them up and just terrific so basically if I want to find you you're grilling at the house is that what you are doing? you can usually find me out in front of the grill you bet
0: <laughs> unless the alarm goes off
2: yeah uh-huh.
0: what else are you cooking
2: over there um, again on the Hawaiian side you've heard of Kalua pork where they cook that in the email well that's very much Hawaiian yeah we've kind of learned how to do that in a crock pot though so I can I can make that happen too Wow, you guys are like eating well over there. Uh huh. But you do in the fire department. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, we've seen a change over the years. Back in the olden days when I got hired, almost everybody ate together in the fire station. Everybody cooked together. And we've seen change now. A lot of people have specialty diets. They carry their own food into work. And um, they we used to call them brown baggers, but that's become... Let me guess, are you a gluten-free fire department now? Um, There's some individuals who are, who might be. There might be some vegans out there, some vegetarians. Yeah, they, it, it's all across the board anymore.
0: I have not yet met a vegan fire department guy.
2: Uh, I've got a couple. i'm no one for sure yeah. <laughs> you know you want you outed him you <laughs> outed him yeah i don't I won't tell you his name on no that, no you know. no no no
0: no but uh, no, don't touch
2: it. it's my kale
0: no no okay yeah. when when you go out on 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 an alarm uh what's the first thing you are doing in that response time because there's so many accidents that happen just in responding
2: mm-hmm. right yeah, just uh. Always, the company officer is making sure that the crew is safe. We've got great driver engineers. It's a promoted position. They are very well skilled. They're highly educated and certified, and they do a great job. And to be real honest with you, they are very, very safe on the road. We have very few mishaps. Sixty-seven thousand alarms last year in Colorado Springs. That's sixty-seven thousand runs. Yeah, yeah. Out of that means you stations. got banged out
0: sixty-seven thousand times.
2: Seven sixty-seven thousand times, and very, very few incidents that occur. Uh, during driving, right? Unless of course you're messing with the chief during Kalua Pork time. <laughs> well, they don't let me ride in the fire trucks anymore. I, I get to work behind a computer in the in the office. So, well, you'll just show up in an incident command situation if you have to. We've got battalion chiefs on duty, and okay. they do a wonderful job. And on the big incidents, truly, um, uh, I if I show up, I try to stay out of their way. They're very, very. Good those at are what the to guys do. who are the incident commanders. Absolutely, and I try to give them advice if I see things that can help with, but. Um, more often than not, they're doing a wonderful job.
5: There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendants on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle. David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first. There's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages would be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that will be $3. And you get the whole can. We
1: won't take your cash. you got to pay with
0: plastic. A... Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I've been coming to Colorado Springs, as you heard earlier in the show, since 1973. Um, and about a year after I first came here is when I discovered what my next guest does. And when you think about it, most people would never say to you that one of the highest railways in the world is here, but it is. The highest, I think, rack railway
5: that's correct. In the yes. world is here. I
0: don't, you're going to explain that. And the person who just said, yes, I was right, for which I ran absolutely nothing, is Spencer N., who's the general manager of the Pikes Peak Cog Railway. So let's, let's get some definitions down. What's a Cog Railway?
5: Uh, a Cog Railway, Peter, is a, uh, a, a, like you said earlier, a rack railroad. It uses a uh, castellated um, rail in the middle of the track between the two outside rails. Which pulls the train. Which pulls the train. There's a gear uh, or a set of gears on the train that pulls the train up and also breaks the train on the way back down. Hopefully. Hopefully.
0: Yes. Well, you are the highest rack railway in the world.
5: We are indeed. Uh, we're the highest uh, railroad in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And here's the thing that blows
0: me 1889 it was started. And you have a perfect safety record.
5: We do, Peter. We've been uh, been really lucky to have a real uh, great group of owners throughout the years who uh, put money back into the railroad, kept the railroad alive, and uh, uh, kept our safety record gr- uh, right up there with it.
0: And how often are you running the train?
5: Uh, right now we're running three trips a day. We just started that in March. And we're, uh, it starts where? starts in Manitou Springs, uh, right outside of Colorado Springs here, right at the base of Pikes Peak. Right. And then how high does it go? It goes to fourteen thousand one hundred and. There's a little bit of discrepancy on the, on the LVG, either 115 feet or 110 feet. Oh, stop it! I think we, I'll, I'll give you that five feet. They redid that a few years ago. But the bottom line is, you better
0: hydrate because you're going up.
5: Better hydrate, exactly right. Don't drink too much the night before either. Yeah, tell that to everybody here at the hotel. <laughs> but
0: the thing is, you're taking almost 300 people a trip.
5: Uh, we do uh, 292 people. I said almost 300 people. Yeah. It depends. You know, we have we have a large train that holds. Uh, 214 people in a small trains that hold 78 passengers but they run will run together in the middle of the summer when we're really busy
0: does the wind blow up there
5: oh boy does it blow <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know it does but do you do you open the windows on the train
5: you can open the windows on the train you bet yeah and it actually gets pretty warm up there in the middle of the summer
0: exactly now the thing is you're being is it diesel
5: it is diesel yes uh-huh. although we do have an operational steam engine that runs uh, Oil it used to burn coal, but coal, but it burns oil now. And, uh, we ran that last year for our 125th anniversary, so that was a whole lot of fun. You know,
0: we did a piece for CBS News on the Grand Canyon Railway. They're running that now on vegetable oil. They are. That's right, and biodiesel, that, mm-hmm. biodiesel. And you know what? You get up there in the engine room, you know, with, with the with the engineer, you're you're like at McDonald's, and it, <laughs> it is smelling like bad French fries. But the point is. From an ecological point of view, it makes a lot of sense.
5: That's right. The rail fans don't like it as much, though, because there's not much yeah, black you know what? smoke.
0: Yeah, but the engineering guys made it work.
5: Mm-hmm. It's much cleaner. It's much much uh, more environmentally friendly, but it, and it's also more efficient. What's the biggest surprise for people who take the train? Uh, I think the altitude. I think most people that take the train don't realize that they're starting at Colorado Springs here, which is uh, uh, about 6,000 feet, and you're going up to 14,000 feet. Everything at 6,000 really... feet, you're already high. You're already high. That's right, yeah. yeah. I and mean, this is Colorado as well, so...
0: Yeah, exactly. Well,
5: <laughs> Hopefully you're not uh, not that kind of
0: hot. I didn't bring that up, Spencer. You <laughs> did. Uh, and the whole trip takes how long?
5: Three hours and ten minutes for the round trip, and that includes about 40 minutes on the summit of Pike Speed.
0: And what are you doing on the summit other than photo op?
5: Uh, there is a, uh, uh, a very nice summit house up there. It's going to be rebuilt hopefully in a couple of years here. Uh, you can grab a donut, world-famous donuts, high-altitude donuts that are made up there. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're laughing, Peter. You've had those before, huh? Yes,
0: I have. And I survived. I did. Uh, What's been the biggest surprise for you? Because you've been working on this thing since 1978.
5: I have, yes. That's right.
0: So the biggest surprise for you in terms of operating this railroad?
5: I guess how much uh is really involved i mean it's not it's much more uh, i don't want to say it's more complicated than a regular railroad but the but the complexity of the uh the cog wheels and the rack rail really makes it a lot more that's going to be perfectly engaged for almost all nine miles and that's really a tough thing to deal with folks. okay
0: here's my stupid question we know it was started in in eighteen eighty nine but what was its purpose in eighteen eighty nine
5: strictly tourism even then even then the uh the story goes is that and the uh, guy
0: who started it by the way was in the mattress for a business.
5: He was, Zalman Simmons, yep. Simmons Beautyrest. Simmons Beauty Rust. 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 Yep, oh my exactly God. right.
0: Okay, and he just wanted to do it.
5: Well, he he was an inventor also, and he he rode to the top of Pikes Peak on a uh, back of a mule because he invented uh, telegraph insulators, and there was a telegraph station on the summit of Pikes Peak, and so he rode a mule in order to be able to see how his uh, insulators were working and said, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous trip, but I, that's the wrong way to do so it. Last time, mule. The mule. I, last time I'm taking the mule. Last time I'm taking the mule. I'm building a railroad. And it took them how long to build it? It took two years. That's, that's short. That's very short. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's straight up. It's, uh, it's pretty straight up. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do wind around. 25% grade is uh, the maximum grade.
0: But 25% grade is steep.
5: It is steep, yes. Uh, normal railroad goes about 4 to 6%.
0: And what's the cost?
5: Uh this year it's forty dollars for adults and twenty-two dollars for children three through twelve. Not bad.
3: Hello. Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. out
6: on the highway looking for adventure.
7: And
0: whatever comes up. One of the things that always amazes me about Colorado Springs every time I come is how few people understand the history here, how few people understand the heritage. They look at it as a great vacation destination, it is, a great recreation destination, it is, but there's so much history here that might surprise you and the person who knows more about that than anybody, is that a good introduction for you? Sure. You'll take it, right, is Leah davis Witherow, who's the curator of history, see I told you there's history here, (laughs) at the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. Why is it called the Pioneers Museum?
8: Well, it actually dates back to the 19th century when a group of um, locals got together in 1896 and were concerned about history passing them by. They wanted to document their own role in settling the West and they formed an organization called the El Paso County Pioneers Association. Because we
0: are in El Paso County. That
8: is exactly right. And Spanish for the pass, meaning you pass, um, a route that has been traveled for thousands of years, taking people from the plains up into the high country of Colorado
0: there and then since that point you start collecting stuff absolutely and and you are i mean i i love this title you're the former president of the society of rocky mountain archivists
8: yes yes
0: (laughs) my favorite librarian in that way but but the point is you have to have a sense of of history Uh, You have to put things in perspective.
8: Absolutely. So in 1896, the El Paso County Pioneers realized that they had stories to share, artifacts to collect, and they began collecting them. We became a city museum in the late 1930s. Um, We moved into the beautiful El Paso County Courthouse, the former El Paso County Courthouse in 1979. High ceilings? Beautiful ceilings, marble columns, um, neoclassical Italian Renaissance architecture in Colorado Springs.
0: Not, not bad digs?
8: Not bad digs at all. In fact, we considered our greatest artifact and we've been working on preserving it since we moved into that building in 1979.
0: Now, if my numbers are correct, you got something like 65,000 objects.
8: We do and we treasure each and every one. We have 80,000 photographs. We have a really robust rich collection of the history and heritage of the Pikes Peak region.
0: And when going through that, and you've done this for a while now, every once in a while you get to a point where it takes a left turn, where you go, I had no idea it really was that way. We always thought it was this way. (laughs) What was one of your more recent discoveries like that?
8: You know, just this week, as a matter of fact, I came across a lantern that was used by a woman named Sarah Cartwright in the 1876 suffrage parade in Philadelphia. And it is literally a you know, a piece of history that connects us to the suffrage movement. And what people forget is that when um, people came from east to west and to settle the west, they brought all their artifacts and things with them. So they brought tokens and mementos of home. And so this artifact is... It survived the journey. It survived the journey. It's fantastic. Now,
0: you mentioned 1876. Now, I'm blown because I didn't realize that the suffragette movement was that far back. I thought it was actually Jeanette Rankin you know, as a congresswoman in the in the uh, turn of the century.
8: Absolutely. It dates to the mid-19th century when women like um, Lucretia Scott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were pushing uh, the Declaration of Sentiments and urging Americans to give women the right to vote pre-Civil War era. And as a matter of fact, women in Colorado, we are the first state, Wyoming was the first territory, we were the first state to grant women's suffrage in 1893, a fact we're very proud of. So
0: that lantern even has more significance. It does, it absolutely. Does. The biggest surprise to you in terms of what you've discovered there
8: Well, you know what always amazes me is that we are not a typical Western town. We're not a town of convenience, meaning we're not Denver where we're settled at a place where it's the confluence of two rivers or two- two, railroads. Two railroads, exactly. We are a place of purpose. We were founded by a Civil War general uh, who came West after the war and created Colorado Springs to be an elite health resort, a place where people would come to um, if they were suffering from consumption or other ailments of the 19th century.
0: And, you know, you mentioned that general. You look at his history, he basically said, you know what? Slavery is out right now. He was the guy who thought, in fact, it was his sign. He thought slavery was worse than war itself.
8: Absolutely. So um, he was a Quaker, and, and as you know, Quakers abhorred war. But he thought slavery was a greater evil than war. And so not only did he join the Union Army, he encouraged other Quakers to do so as well. He really lived his beliefs. Um, And after the war, he came out here, he founded the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, he founded Colorado Springs, and then he made it his home.
0: So much of a successful museum is in storytelling. Yes. um, And in the way that you tell the story. Otherwise, if it's not interesting, people don't pay attention or they don't remember anything. How do you tell your story?
8: We we're always looking for new ways to tell stories, and we believe storytelling is a powerful tool to connect people to history. So we opened a new exhibit called The Story of Us in January, and it's The Story of Us, Pikes Peak Region A to Z. And so there's both an in-house exhibit, 26 exhibits really, Uh, each letter of the alphabet stands for something unique about the Pikes Peak Region, and we love telling why we're a unique community. And then um, we wanted to share more artifacts. You know, you mentioned earlier we have sixty-five thousand artifacts in our collection, but only one to two percent of them are on exhibit at any one time. So you can
0: always rotate.
8: We can always rotate, but we we want. Where's that lantern? <laughs> well, it soon will be in the story of us.
0: Um, <laughs> well, now that you mention it, exactly. Of yeah, yeah. Thank
8: you. Um, so we built this really powerful online tool using GIS, Geographical Information Systems Technology, to combine geography and history. And the A to Z platform lives online at www.cspmstorybus.com. And this platform is, uh, we have stories built into the maps. So the A to Z stories live within a series of maps, and then the maps help provide context for the stories. And it's it's a brand new platform. Um, it's our effort to bring storytelling alive and make it exciting, make history important to people. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Howard Radio,
7: clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh?
0: Most people don't realize Colorado Springs has a 90-year-old symphony. It's got a fine arts center, a world-class fine arts center, and here's a surprise. America's largest museum dedicated to money. It's right here in Colorado Springs. So, of course, I had to get the curator on. Doug Mudd, how are you, sir?
7: Great. Thank you for having me on, Peter. Did you bring money? I have some money in my wallet, (laughs) but not any of the special money in our collections.
0: But, you know, when you travel, and and it's a point that, that I know you like to make at the museum, every time you travel, anywhere you go in the world, the very first contact you have Knowing that you're in a foreign country, other than immediate language,
7: is what you're holding in your hand. It's it's the currency. Absolutely, it gives you a, a first taste of what the country's all about. And if you go back to
0: the early days, you know, before there there, there it was rocks, and then it was, and then maybe some coins, and 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 how that was used. Today, I'm fascinated with how each country is trying to move at lightning speed to embrace technology in terms of trying to to, to thwart the counterfeiters. Um, most people don't realize, and I, I've done stories with the Secret Service on this, you know, the $100 bill, the super notes, and you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And and one of the largest countries, not the largest countries, one of the countries doing the most amount of counterfeiting, it may surprise you, is North Korea. These guys are counterfeiting, because it's no longer a guy with a linotype machine and a, and a, and a green eye shade and a press. It's all digital.
7: Yep, and, and that's what's interesting is that about 24 hours after the first coins were invented, the counterfeiters got involved, and there's been a war ever since. Of they produce a new coin, a new piece of paper money. They try to make it better than before, and then somebody comes up with a counterfeit.
0: Okay, but here's one for you because if they can come up with this one, somebody has access to the actual government machines because when I saw the Australian currency, right when mm-hmm. they came out, it was plastic. With a clear plastic
7: window in it. I mean, and you couldn't rip it. You couldn't, right? Right. Yeah. And it, it's great money because because it's plastic, it lasts about three to five times longer than the regular paper money. And it doesn't break down as easily. But because of that plastic window, you can't do some of the basic things that people used to do, photocopying or Photographing a note and then making a copy on paper because you've got to get that window and that's the difficulty
0: And if you don't have access to the actual manufacturing process for that window, you don't have access to anything.
7: That's right It's polymer that they use and it's it's not easy to make. What's the most counterfeited bill? Is it is it the 20 in the US? It's the 20 outside of the US. It's the hundred Really? Yeah, because in most of the world the dollar is the alternative uh, currency And usually they use it in large amounts, so $100 bills are what people use for international trade.
0: And of course, the actual, I mean, I I go back to my stamp collection as a kid. When you talk about numismatics, there are certain coins, you know, that are just amazingly valuable uh, in terms of US currency. Yes. I mean, when I was growing up, my grandmother would give me a silver dollar every year, you know, I still have a few of those running around. But what's the most valuable coin that's still in circulation?
7: Still in circulation? Um, well, currently, that's difficult to say because I mean, basically, nobody's using gold coins anymore. So you're talking about the highest. I mean, they're still legal
0: tender, but nobody's using them.
7: Right. If so I,
0: if I went to the bank tomorrow with a gold coin and say, "Can you make change?" They would probably say, "We can't."
7: Yeah, they they wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, and with paper money, it's a different thing. You can take a Civil War era ten dollar note from the United States. And technically, it's still worth $10. However, you'd be insane to do that because the collector value value is way, way more than that. Now, is there still a $10,000 note? There is not a $10,000 note anymore. But there was. There was, and we even had 100000 who And whose picture was on it? Uh, <laughs> uh-oh, put me on the spot here. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, we had Wilson on the 100000 uh, is That's not still around, is it? No, it's not. I think it was actually... Uh, Actually, I don't know. It's okay. Well, we're going to find out. Yes. I got to know. But how did the Money
0: Museum get to Colorado Springs?
7: Well, that's a, a story in itself because the American Numismatic Association, which is the umbrella organization that owns the museum, uh, started in 1891. But in 1967, they were looking for a headquarters, and they did a search nationwide. It turns out that Colorado Springs had the best deal for the organization to set up their headquarters here and that's why we moved here you you went for the best deal absolutely and you've been here ever since yep
3: hello and welcome to alaska flight 438 we'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft the most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants please look at one now
0: My next guest is indicative, even though he may not explain it this way, of, of longevity here at this hotel because in 100 years, they've only had five executive chefs before him. That's right. So you just can't get rid of you guys. <laughs> David Patterson, welcome to the show.
6: Thank you very much.
0: Um, you have quite a history. I mean, you, you are a, a, a graduate and alum of uh, Alain Ducasse. That's right. And uh, which, which restaurant? Which, which one? Which
6: well, I spent time in a number of his kitchens, uh, including Louis Cannes and Monaco. As I've, been, well as I've been there. Plaza Atene in Paris. As Every
0: well. table at that restaurant has a different zip code.
6: <laughs> well said. Right? I mean, That's right.
0: you could not overhear anybody else's conversation, That's even right. if you
6: wanted to. Most beautiful dining room in the world. It really is. Yeah.
0: It really, and you sit there going, they let me in here? You know, it's one, right? I felt it's that like, way every day. It's like the old Groucho Marx line. I would never join a club that would have me as a member. That's the way it was, yeah. And then, of course, you did
6: uh, the Hana Ranch. I, yes, I was the executive chef at uh, Hotel Hana Maui for a number of years.
0: And, you know, one of the things that you find, and we've done this show many times from Hawaii, one of the things that you find, and I'm sure you've seen it here now and you experience it now in Colorado, is you really can do farm-to-table there.
6: Absolutely, in the truest sense. I mean, it was the... Um... The, the most romanticized version of being a chef, uh, fishermen bringing in fish from the Hana Bay and farmers on the island growing whatever we asked them to grow, writing a daily changing menu at the hotel. It absolutely was.
0: But, you know, the Broadmoor has always prided itself as being somewhat self-sufficient. I mean, here's a hotel that had at one time its own zoo, its own fire department, its own, I mean, everything, right? That's right. And more or less, you still do. So, so how is it for sourcing for you to, to, to be able to do your job?
6: Uh, it's great. You know, it's it's just on a larger scale than, than uh, Hotel Hana Maui, you know. It, well, how many rooms <laughs> at the hotel? Exactly, Go. 60 versus 800. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we have a lot of uh, uh, great toys here in our toolkit. We have our own greenhouses. We have our own beehives. We're raising our own herd of Wagyu beef up at Eagle's Nest Ranch, uh, the most genetically pure herd of Wagyu cattle in the country. So there's a lot of fun toys for us as chefs to use here.
0: And is this the first time you've done your own honey?
6: It is. It's the first time I've, I have, I've had, that's the first time I've had the opportunity to. And are you doing it up on the roof? We're doing it around property here at the hotel, as well as at Eagles Nest Ranch.
0: Cool. And how much can you actually make?
6: Well, Eagles Nest Ranch in September will probably harvest about 1200 pounds. So quite that's a, a lot. Yeah,
0: quite a lot. And since honey doesn't decompose, It'll, yeah, exactly. you got it forever.
6: It, it, the volume that we operate, though, 1,200 pounds, will probably last us about six months. So.
0: so, okay, so going from a 60-room boutique hotel mm-hmm. to basically a city in itself, because yes. that's what the Broadmoor is. Absolutely. Right? What adjustments did you have to make? Uh, in terms of the choices in menu, in terms of the food preparation, in terms
6: of, of all of those things. Sure. Well, you know, we hold ourselves to the... To the highest standard here. So uh, there's not much deviation when it comes to quality and and menu composition. I I think it's building strength in our team and our culinary team and uh, relying on them as individuals, relying on my chef de cuisines, my banquet chefs, and those folks to uh, make good choices, give them the tools they need to be successful and and allow them to uh, bloom as as leaders. How big is your team? Uh, 300 culinarians, uh, 25 salaried chefs. I love the way you said that. It's the attack of the culinarians. <laughs> They're coming. It's it's a big team, and it feels like it feels like an army sometimes. Absolutely,
0: sometimes it takes an army. Yeah. Now I'm going to assume that you source your lamb from Colorado. Absolutely. Uh, wouldn't you have Any you wouldn't have any other way.
6: We yeah, absolutely. We work with a number of ranches on the western slope and in the northern part of the state, and it's all Colorado lamb and seafood. Seafood. We're flying in seafood from uh, both coasts. We work with some purveyors out on the East Coast that are, are, you know, uh, shipping us dayboat fish and shellfish uh, as well as on the West Coast. We also work with Honolulu Fish Company, so we're getting uh, fresh seafood shipped in from there as well.
0: Is there a type of fish you will not source?
6: Uh, you know, we try to work with the Monterey Bay Aquarium sustainability list and, and make wise choices uh, with all of our seafood. Uh, so we work within those parameters to, to make sustainable choices that are, you know, good for the guest experience and good for the environment. So if I'm going to guess, not a whole lot of swordfish? Not a whole lot of swordfish. And if it is, it's, it's line caught swordfish from George's Bank up in the, in the northern Atlantic.
0: Basically, otherwise known as the perfect storm surface. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> if you can catch there, you can keep it.
6: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What's your biggest challenge here, then? You know, um, I, th- I think we've touched on it a couple times. It's just the scope of the project. You know, our, our ability to keep as many balls in the air uh, as possible and, and to do it at a five-star, five-diamond level, at, you know, day in and day out. That's, that's the real
3: challenge. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
3: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery
1: Plus.